welcome to the Industry.Fashion's In Conversations podcast, where we invite you to tune in to the stories of some of fashion's most inspirational leaders. From the history of their careers to the current priorities for their businesses and advice for their fellow fashion friends, these conversations cover it all. The In Conversation series is staged in proud partnership with Klarna. I'm Loretta Roberts, Editor-in-Chief of the Industry.Fashion, and today I'm in conversation with Mike Welsh, founder of Atelier.com the online marketplace for independent fashion retailers. Mike left school at 16 with few qualifications, but a bucket load of entrepreneurial instinct. He started out as a tyre fitter and rose through the ranks of that industry, eventually setting up an e-commerce platform that he sold to global giant Michelin in 2015. Through a business connection, he came across the opportunity to acquire the assets of a former multi-brand fashion retailer, which he then set about transforming into a new business which today hosts almost 300 global fashion boutiques. Sales through the platform have jumped 250% during the COVID-19 pandemic, and the company has just completed a successful crowdfunding campaign. Furthermore, he has persuaded former British Vogue editor, Alexandra Shulman, to join the business as an advisor. He talks about his unlikely journey into fashion, his impressions of the industry now that he's an established part of it, and shares his advice for fellow entrepreneurs. So Mike Welsh, CEO of Atelier, welcome to the Industry.Fashion podcast. Thank you for joining us. How are you today? Good, thank you. Yeah, another day in lockdown. Another day in lockdown. (laughs) How have you spent it and how have you kept your business running under these circumstances? It's been an it's certainly been an interesting time, not something that you can you can plan for. Um, I think that from a I think probably the biggest challenge has been the discipline between turning off work as opposed to anything else. And in Italy, we've got a, um, you know, we're a remote business. So we, you know, we, we found it quite straightforward actually to, to migrate from the office into, you know, into, from home working, yeah. um, you know, but at the same time, you know, people are working as soon as they get up and, and, you know, and, and, you know, some of our guys really were having to say, look, you need to operate more office like ours. So if anything, actually probably as a business has been a beneficiary of, of, uh, of homework and lack of ill, well, ill discipline around the, the hours people are keeping. So we've had to kind of, we've had to get our heads around that, but, but otherwise, you know, it's interesting, you know, lack of, of, of need to travel to the office um you know not wasting meeting time it's probably created a lot more uh, focus and efficiency ultimately for, for, for our business development so we can't really complain on that front it's interesting you say that because i um our business is somewhat remote as well we have hot desks in london and we go in and out when we're obviously allowed to do that um and work at home and people do keep strange hours i do because i get up first thing in the morning so I roll out of bed and go onto my computer and I didn't used to do that because I used to take my kids to school. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's really, yeah. really odd hours right now, but um, the home working thing hasn't been a problem for us either. Now we're yeah. going to talk about Atelier in a bit more detail as we move through this conversation, but I wanted to delve into your very interesting backstory first, if I may. You left school at 16, I understand. When was that? And not that you need to give your age away too, too specifically if you don't want to, but roughly when was that? And what did you do then? Because it wasn't fashion, was it? <laughs> no, no, it was mid, in the mid 90s. Uh, you know, and I just, I couldn't wait to get out. I mean, I, you know, it's probably um, a bit of a stereotypical story, this one, but, you know, I couldn't wait to get out. Terrible in school, um, didn't achieve anything. 
lack of attention was kind of my, you know, the the the, uh, the watchword all all words all over my um, my my annual reviews with teachers, and you know, it just wasn't for me. So you know, I left, got the first job I could get, um, which was as a tire fitter. So. Um, a local garage installing tires. I'd, I'd been doing that on the weekends anyway. Yeah, I continued to do that, and I was made redundant a year after I'd started that job, um, and then started to kind of buy and sell tires because obviously that was then my specialism because I didn't know anything else. Um, and I'd done a year of that, so um, did a bit of that, and found, found myself building a, a website. Um, which my my dad had a computer, so I um, just taught myself to build a website. It kind of just came quite naturally. There was a there was an application I could use, very very kind of basic, but um, but created something that I could then buy magazine strip ads, put the web address in, um, and then I was then I was off and running. I was selling ties on the internet, and it was kind of kind of by. Yeah. Yeah, the 90s to have an e-commerce business that's yeah late ni- late 90s and it, i mean look it was it was everything was dial up you know it was uh you know we i was waiting on my you know hit dial up and then uh send receive and wait on emails coming in hoping there's a couple of orders or inquiries and, you know so i've been doing i've been doing what i do you know for you know well since since the yeah since the mid 90s um so I built this little business and uh, then I was approached by QuickFit, who um, I think you'll know, a, a tire retail business. Yeah. And they bought, they bought the business off me. So it was quite a surprise. They were looking to get into the internet and nobody was really doing anything of note. Uh, neither was I really, but I was one of the only ones doing anything. And I yeah, said, yeah, let's, let's do a deal. And I ended up moving from Liverpool, where I'm originally from, to Edinburgh, where QuickFit are based. Um, and that, that then be, began a, a bit of a journey. So they were, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll keep this in, in a nutshell, but they were bought by Ford the year after. I then found myself in uh, Detroit at Ford headquarters running a lot of the online that was non-Ford aftermarket in Europe. So I kind of got, I'd gone from, yeah, I had a little office above Ethel Austin's in, in Egbeth, Liverpool, on, with, a, with a YTS employee on a Princess Trust computer like two yeah. two years earlier. Now I'm in Mich- Michigan, Detroit, you know, running this squad of people having no real, I didn't have any idea, you know, really about, you know, the internet per se. It was just that I was, you know, in, what do they say in the, in the land of, um, of the blind, the yeah. one eyed, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was the one eyed man. Yeah, very much. So, so, so I, I continued down that road and, uh, and then I kind of got a bit, I got a bit bored of being a, you know, a kind of in a big business setup, and and a, and a few years later decided it was around two thousand and three, two three, decided to leave and start my own business again. So came back to Edinburgh where I was kind of based then, um, still am, and um, and started BlackCircles.com, and then that was kind of a, over fifteen years built an online tire retail business um, again. So, but this time. I, you know, I was not just selling tires, shipping them to customers' houses. I was building a network of garages that were independent. They call it shared economy these days. But basically, where I could leverage somebody else's resource and assets to install my tires to my customers' vehicles, which meant I didn't have to open stores. And from the supply side, I was listing distributors' inventory and shipping it um, 
as I got an order for it, so I didn't have to buy tyres either. So it meant I was very had, had a very agile uh, business model. You sold black circles, didn't you, for quite a large sum of money? 2000, yeah, it was okay for every all the shareholders did well. In 2015, we sold to Michelin. And I spent a little bit of time in uh, France with them, with their exec team on their, on their e-commerce strategy. Um, and he obviously uh, made sure that there was a handover with the business. And I promoted some of my team internally to, the, to, to obviously to cover my um, imminent exit. So I kind of we, we, gave it probably a year, um, just under a year. And then, you know, kind of phased in the team. And that all happened really quite quite quickly and, and very smoothly because, you know, we were kind of, we were geared up. Any of the businesses that I've, I've been lucky to, to, have, to, to being able to build and develop, you know, it, it's always been with the help of, of an amazing squad of people. Everybody would say that, but it's, you know, I very much work on the basis that we, you know, we have to have an absolute lack of bureaucracy. So flat structure, everybody has got the ability to input a strategy. Everybody has heard in terms of their opinion, you know, as long as it's based on facts and, you know, we can stand behind what we're saying, um, you know, which in itself means that, you know, we, we limit what we contribute to only stuff that's going to make a difference in, in large part. So I remember when you acquired, I remember actually in its previous guise, it had previously been a multi-brand um, online boutique almost hadn't it really um premium level fashion for the for our listeners who perhaps weren't familiar with it then you came seemingly from planet mars and bought a fashion business and i was thinking who is this guy um but then i did a bit of digging and i noted that you had done a deal at some point with that had involved Sir terry leahy who had been the ceo of tesco and he had been yeah. one of the investors in Attlee at the time that's right the old, the old version of Atelier, which went into administration you acquired the asset so was that the introduction to fashion by him that brought- yes yeah, yeah i would i would say so I, 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 partly um i'd already kind of been looking at opportunities to enter markets where we where there was a high, very high penetration of what what i would call big box retailers um uh, but also a very strong underpinning of independent operators. When I did start to make kind of these the early moves into the market, people were like, what is this guy? Who's, what's he all about, this tyre guy? I think I was referred to as the tyre guy. I mean, so many times the tyre guy until until I managed to eventually shake it off. But, but, You've been dwelling on it now for about 10 minutes. <laughs> That's okay, don't worry. No, no, but... but but it's fascinating, but when you talked about your business before, what you subsequently went and did with Atelier made a great deal of sense then. Didn't yeah. It? Yeah. So, 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 you know, for me, it's, it's, it's in, when you kind of think about the, the structuring of the, of the business model, taking a really objective look at the, the, the plight of the independent boutiques in the market and, and the, their ability, their resilience and their, their ability to still be standing you know, kind of boom or bust. I mean, we've already had, you know, 2008 and there's been plenty of opportunities pre that, you know, to wipe out, you know, um, independent operators in all markets that are just not well, you know, well established and, and resilient to, to these to kind of turbulent times. So I was kind of looking at it objectively and saying, look, what is, what's really great about 
these businesses and, and where are the weaknesses and, and is there value that can be created? And Sarah Murray, who runs uh, Jane Davidson in Edinburgh, which is a, a well-established boutique second generation, I knew her husband well and, 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 and then I met Sarah and got to know her well. And I'd had conversations with her while I was running Black Circles along those lines. I mean, she, you know, she, was, she had a great thriving business locally with walk-in customers. She understood her customers. She was buying really very well. She had Harvey Nichols on her doorstep, like literally within half a mile. But she still managed to, to win um, every season. She, she'd get the stock out of the door. She, and I kind of looking at that and trying to understand why. Like, how, how do you stand up against these big guys? And, and what, what became really apparent to me was the way that, they, that, that she was buying and the way her team were pulling together their collections and, and making choices on, on the merchandising each season was so well thought through relative to the customers that they knew that they, that they were able to cater for locally. So number one, they understood their customers better than anybody else. You know, in, in the big box guys wouldn't have a clue. They just buy lots of black or lots of blue and lots of tens and lots of twelves. Whereas, you know, Sarah and the team would look at it and say, look, you know, what can we do differently? And how do we tailor that for the customers that we know are going to come in in the door and then how do we you know kind of you know build that continue to build that loyalty and that relationship with our customers there's amazing um loyalty and bond between the boutique and customers that's kind of one of the things so 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 that was the second thing their ability to um to maintain that loyal link with customers as well as that you know the way these guys are set up in, in large part is you know they don't overextend you know they they have to turn the re- the inventory into re- into money you know, revenue because they need to buy next season so you know going on sale all the time is not an option there needs to be margin in the job so there's a real tension there's real pressure around buying the right stuff and making sure they sell it at a respectable price so kind of all of that for me kind of felt like well you know at a, at a local level in the store to, to the customers locally they do a fabulous job why can that not translate itself to online? So the thinking with my thinking was, so if I was able to, to create a platform where the boutiques were able to effectively um, link in all of their inventory and we could create an economies of scale on their behalf, we could create in aggregate a yeah. fabulous range of product. And that means the customer that we get in on you know for the down von Fustenberg is gonna is gonna be highly more likely to buy from us. And that then creates that um, you know that scale piece, that scale play for, for the boutiques, you know, amongst their amongst their peers. So, so what we start to build is almost like a you get this army of boutiques, and, and the key there is that you know we you know we will target and we will work with boutiques, um, you know, who who are like minded, who buy similar product, who cater for similar customers, and therefore the overlap is. Um, I wouldn't say it's quite hand in glove, but it, it, we're getting closer to that as we get better at targeting. And we do that cross border. We do it, you know, internationally now. And um, and, and the, the skill really is being able to make sure we build these ranges in in, in aggregate across multiple boutiques. But from a consumer point of view, it just looks like a, a natural depth of stock. It's true because I've shopped on marketplaces before, and I tend to go to them if there's a thing that I specifically want, and mm-hmm. like one of the most obvious. You know, a matches or a net forty doesn't have it, and I think 
I'm going to go and have a scoot around one of the marketplaces because somebody it might be old, old season or it might be end of season and they've still got it, you know. And yes, so you can discover these little gems that um, in the mainstream they didn't have it or they've already sold out of it. So it's quite smart in that regard. You talked there about um, getting the boutiques on board. So how do you do that? So you've got about how many now? 200 and something, is it? Yeah, get on for 300. Get on for 300 boutiques. So how did you go about targeting the boutiques that you wanted or did you get a lot of approaches? And- yeah, no, that's a good question. I, to begin with, it's hard to preempt exactly what your customers are going to want to buy from you. you. You start with an inkling. I mean, we had a database. We could profile that database, look at, you know, geodemographic profiling and try and understand, you know, match that up against product and, and brands and try and understand, broadly speaking, what we were most likely to want to have to range and merchandise through the site. I mean, one thing that, that came was apparent from early on was that we were more of a premium uh, proposition than, than, than a, say, a fast fashion um, type consumer. Um, although there's, there's definitely a middle ground that we occupy, so bridge brands and premium brands with some kind of quite unique kind of Scandi-type stuff yeah. from ind- independent labels. Yeah, so, so it's about how we then, you know, that was kind of, you start with that kind of core um, understanding, if you want to call it, and then, over, and then use the data, because you use the data a lot to really... To, to then try and hone in on, okay, well, this you know this type of product isn't really selling very well, but this this is, you know, and then and it's a process of elimination and just you know almost daily the guys are um, just fine tuning the you know the range and 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 that what that meant was within the first twelve months where we started in terms of uh, boutiques and, and product and, and brands. We were just slimming that down and getting more and more efficient about what we we're offering, which made the merchandising easier, the conversion increased, cost per acquisition reduced, and that within there becomes that the the real um, from our point of view the real value proposition. When we can get to a point where we've effectively optimized um, fully the cost per acquisition and, and to reduce it and improved the conversion, um, then everybody's making money. So. You know, it's, it's how do we how do we get to that? You know, with the, it's not an exact science, but with more information and more customers, we get even better at it. So, you know, I would say we're kind of, you know, probably two thirds down that road. There's still a lot of work to do. Um, the ranges will be get, you know, will will be will will improve more um, on the basis that we, you know, we can start having informed conversations with our boutiques about, you know, what they might want to bring in to store based on yeah based on what we're seeing elsewhere so i think once you've got that kind of core presence of of like-minded um operators you can then start to share information and say look you know you don't stock this but what we're seeing is you know customers are buying exactly and that's the benefit for them back in store as well not just over on atelier i was going to ask actually whether you um share that data is that part of the um yes being one of your boutiques is you get that information and you can adjust your offer accordingly because like you say what might be right for a very local market in Edinburgh you might be missing opportunities from shoppers in Bristol or London or wherever you know if you absolutely yeah Yeah. no we should we do and 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 you know it's it is interesting because 
you know, as I say, the, 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 the kind of further down the road we get, the more experience we become, the more data we, we have, more customers we capture um, through the site, um, the more accurate those assumptions are. So what we find, you know, and, and you know, we're going through a phase, we're starting to engage brands as well now and, and, and set, you know, set labels and because using the, again, using the data, um, you know, they start to say, well, actually, we can have a really informed conversation with the network of boutiques that you have, some of which we might be working with already, already but, you know, usually there'll be, there'll be a large proportion that, that aren't, you know, so, you know, within itself, we, we, we create an audience of very receptive um, buyers who, you know, who would be quite happy to have a conversation if we using the data can demonstrate that we think there's a there's a great match and then our customers our, our retail customers are the ultimate beneficiaries of that uh, tie up if we can if we can uh, create one where are your near 300 boutiques based at the moment and it's you're going to change where where are they? Yeah, so so you a combination of it's Europe European, uh, so but a combination of um, you know we've got Germany, Italy, Spain, um, Britain, obviously, um, France, um, you know, and I think Portugal. So so we're, you know we're really we're actually not looking so much at, at the international limitations and more about the the product opportunities that you want to be exactly. In. Yeah. So, so what we're more in, what we're more interested in is look how can we um, how can we add to that this particular uh, depth of inventory in this particular brand and and you know that ultimately as you start to the, the well starts to dry locally you start to look internationally one of the benefits to that is you've got you know the ability to to ship you know maybe quicker or so we run we run different channels of shipping and you know we've got quite a quite a complicated but but smart approach to how we get product to customers quickly oh it it does sound it does sound very smart and um you're i mentioned that you're going to change things up a bit but on the back of a fundraise that you're doing at the moment you're crowdfunding um in the middle of a pandemic you are interestingly the second podcast guest i've had in the past few weeks is crowdfunding in a pandemic which i find extraordinary and theirs was really successful yours seems to be at the moment as well still going isn't it when We've got about two weeks left, yeah. So it's an int- it's an it's an interesting one actually because in hindsight, um, probably the messaging around it, we we probably could have been a little bit clearer about what we, what we were doing and why we were doing it, um, particularly during the pandemic. But we didn't, you know. Look, you, you stop. I, I, I didn't I, see it coming. Look, we see a lot of things. Like, but it just so happened that you think because yeah. it's tough and quite often it fails. These two people I've spoken to have been doing it in the most difficult circumstances. It seemed to have been the most successful, but yeah. <laughs> it's incredible. Well, and, and look, we we ours is ours is very much driven by we. So we, it's interesting. Edinburgh, local to us, we've had um, we know of a, a couple of brands. A beer brands actually um, have done very well engaging customers yes. and uh, their retail partners and and you know we I really like that you know I, I and look we you know I funded in, in large part the kind of that startup phase and then we've had follow on investment but we've never really gone for a you know what you might term a Series A round because you know we've been in pursuit of. Yeah, getting a break-even position, getting the business absolutely in a in a place where we can scale it, um, whilst keeping in control. You know, one of my 
you know, one, one of the things that I've been less willing to do early was was bring in venture capital money and, and lose control of our strategy and our business. So, so, but there was an opportunity for us. So the end the end of two thousand and nineteen, I was looking to uh, to bring in a little bit more investment to the business um, personally. So I was going to, which I've done, and, and I was um, as a process that that uh, was concluded. Um, but in conversation uh, with some of my colleagues, we were like, look, why don't we engage the boutiques? You know, because some of our boutiques have been saying to us, look, we'd love to invest. Can we get involved um, in some way? Um, as well as customers, we'd had, you know, I mean, it was it was a handful, but three or four customers that said, look, we'd love to uh, be involved. We like the model and, and so on. So we thought, you know, why don't we, why don't we do that alongside my personal investment and basically give our customers and boutiques the opportunity to to work with us and to, to come along for the journey and that you know the great thing about crowdfunding was the entry check was really low i mean people were, you know customers could could put 10 pounds in and have a you know have a, a tiny bit of the atelier opportunity which i found really quite uh quite amazing it's, it's a great it's a great thing to be able to do yeah. but obviously that was before the pandemic so i was kind of like look do we pull it or do we continue to do it and look our, our numbers, our performances have been fabulous. Actually, it's it's been a it's been a great advert for the resilience of the model. So you know, we're like, look, we're we're two hundred and fifty, three hundred percent up on last year on the run rate. So um, we should keep this thing. We should keep this going. And and um, and we'll you know we'll raise in excess of four hundred thousand um, uh, through the through the crowdfund and. You know, and at that, it'll have been a massively successful initiative. We'd be delighted that you know we've been able to engage customers and, and boutiques in particular because it just creates more of a relationship. You know, people talk about loyalty, but what does that mean? Well, you know, in terms of the, the buy-in, you know, we I want I engage our, our stakeholders to tell us what they think, the good, the bad, and the ugly. What are we doing well? What aren't we doing well? But now do it with a vested interest as a shareholder, you know, let's have a, you've got a real right to reply. So it's really exciting for me getting a really engaged group of people um, who we work with to, um, to come along on the journey with us. Now it's time to hear a bit more about our wonderful partners, Klarna. Klarna lets customers pay up to 30 days later or in three installments at thousands of online stores such as ASOS, River Island, Michael Kors, Made.com and many more. Find out more at Klarna.com. You've got this, um, well, you will have circa £400,000, possibly a bit more from your crowdfunding. What are you going to spend that on? So we're going to open um, uh, the US. Um, uh, it, so, so we'll have a separate site and we'll have a, a, a team, um, small team that will be based there looking after so some of the key functions. Boutiques? Will it just have American boutiques on it or will it have a global... It will be global, so it's 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 more about the interface with consumers. So 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 the particularly the East Coast has been a, a big success for us, a real standout. Um, but we haven't really been doing anything, you know, to, to necessarily differently than we've been been doing in the UK. Um, so you know, having a base in the US and having the ability to engage uh, more specifically with US consumers is is really important part of our strategy. And look, that the four hundred thousand pounds isn't going to give us um you know replicate what we've created here on a on a whatever it is a hundred times multiple of of addressable uh, revenue over there but 
but what it will give us is it is it as a cornerstone as a starting point um into from a technology point of view and also from a um from an appointment perspective um so, so, so really getting that established, building out our systems, making some more key hires to the team, um, and then you know really then pushing forward towards our you know our break even, which has always been our you know that's that's the the the, the touch point that we want to get to. We want to we want to be you know, want to be a, a profitable um, uh, growing uh, business in in this market because there aren't many of them. No, <laughs> on. I mean, I was going to ask you, you, you mentioned there, I mean, let's just talk about trading during COVID and we'll come back to just fashion in general, but you are up 250% year on year, did you say, roughly? Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, do you, I mean, apart from the obvious that people haven't actually been able to go to the shop, why do you think that the Atelier platform has been has proved so successful? Is it because people are gravitating towards more independent retailers at the moment in a sense of, I don't know, solidarity in tough times or whatever it may be? Or is it something else? I mean, what do you put it down to? Yeah, I think it's probably a couple of factors. From an inventory point of view, we really stepped up our availability um, just before all of this happened. So, So our recruitment had stepped up and our ability to onboard inventory had improved because of our technology uh, in, in first phase of technology improvements we've made. But then that dovetailed quite nicely with engagement with, with those boutiques. So, you know, we, we've been, a, we've been a, if you like, an add-on channel uh, for, for our boutique partners. I certainly feel that what this whole uh, COVID experience has, has, really, has really brought home is, is the importance of a, of a, a proper multi-channel strategy. And, and what we hear from our boutiques is, you know the internet for us. For, and this is some of them, but but a large part of them. The internet's been an add-on. It's been a a nice addition to our store sales. Kind of fast forward through COVID, and 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 certainly the feedback now is this: we need to have a consistent um, e-commerce pillar to our multi-channel strategy, and we don't have that on our own. And that was, you know, as I say, it was a whole premise to me starting actually was that. You know the boutiques out there just don't have it, and there's a reason that it's just not economical because you know the unit economics for a boutique to sell online are very, very different from you know from a you know somebody's got a, a, a big range. So, so it's definitely brought the focus onto what we can provide. Um, I think we've been very efficient during the period of, of time. So that engagement with the boutiques has been has been really, really good, and we've been ready for that. So. I think they found, um, you know, that we've been able to to give them the attention they need and want, and we've been able to move that inventory, uh, maybe not to, to the full extent that they would have through this store, but certainly to supplement a lot of what was not moving out the front door, which has been great, because that's fundamentally what they wanted. Yeah. Um, and then from a consumer point of view, um, we, you know, we've asked, I guess our star has been rising slowly because of the way that we've approached the market. Like I said earlier, we, we're not in a rush. Um, we're not trying to burn through money. We're not, you know, there's no award for burning through money quickest. You know, like I say, unlike, you know, perhaps some out there, you know, we, we, we want to build a business that is, is really built on, on solid foundations. Um, but we, we've definitely been positioned well for, this kind of whole discovery phase. What do I mean by that? 
you know, consumers have been finding Atelier because they've been looking for something different. So, you know, arguably the consumers that, that we uh, have experienced, you know, and, and, and we've been used to um, catering for uh, are looking for a product or they're looking for a, you know, they, they want to buy something different or they're, you know, they're looking to, to go th- effectively go through the virtual rails and see, you know, what's out there. And they've had a bit of time. So, you know, people have been sat at home and, and they found Atelier and, and they've been, you know, and, and that's been great for us. Um, and on the back of that, you know, there's just a multiplying effect because that then creates referrals and, and, and that's where we're seeing the growth. And it, it hasn't stopped. I mean, we are absolutely powering ahead. I mean, it's even before the announcement about Alexandra joining the team, you know, we, we've, um, we've been astonished by the level of, of sales and growth we've been getting. But again, if you kind of take a step back and look at it objectively, we've really built slowly but surely to this point. Um, and we've had the, we've built the capacity. So we've been able to cope, um, but it's probably just happened a little bit sooner than we'd, we'd imagined. And it's kind of being expedited by the fact that people have had a little bit more time and they've been able to find Atelier and, and, and convert it into sales, which has been brilliant. And have you been uh, approached by a lot of boutiques during this time? Have, have a lot of them thought, we better, <laughs> we better get online? I'm, I'd imagine. Yeah, it's like a flywheel. You know, we kind of, you know, one gets another gets, you know, the more sales generate, you know, more awareness of boutiques who then come on board, which generates more conversion into sales because we've got the inventory. And, you know, we, we've, re- as I say, we've been building to this point and, you know, we're really starting to see the acceleration on both the boutique recruitment and the, and the customer conversion. That's a happy, you know, happy equation, I suppose. It is for me, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have just just a self-interested point of view, really, because I'm probably an Atelier customer, I suppose, if I were to put myself somewhere. Um, I go a bit higher end on handbags, but (laughs) I think my clothing, I would buy from something in that space. But there was this great big hole, it always seemed to me, in the market, because we had quite well served on luxury, um, very well Mm -hmm. served on luxury, some fantastic businesses in that space, and some brilliant businesses in fast fashion. And it always felt to me like there was this bit in the middle that just wasn't in a, from an online perspective that really wasn't terribly well served. So yes, seem to be happening. That's where we want to be. That's that's where we want to be. And and yeah. to, to the point earlier about the data, you know, that's where our our data set is telling us that our customers want us to be as well. So the more we do of that, um, and the more we stay focused on, you know, we we've, we've got a suite of brands now that we know as long as we we're able to get them, we'll sell. You know, and that is a great as a retailer. That's a fabulous place to be. Is that you understand, um, you know, that that as long as we can get it, we're going to be able to sell it. We're not having to take, you know, any not necessary risks. Mm. Yeah, trying to bring in, you know, right out there boutiques with right out there inventory that we've got no idea we're going to be able to sell now because all we we just use the data, use the information, and um, and then it just compounds. So, so, um, so I agree with you. It, and that was. You know, probably early on when I was engaging with Sarah and really starting to understand the market, that was the bit that really came out to me. You know, you, you kind of look at who else is trying to, do, you know, doing similar things and, and who's in this market online. You look at Farfetch, as you say, right up at the top. And um, and then you've got the fast fashion guys doing their thing. You think, wow, um, the regularity of, of purchase from Matterley is, is greater, you know, because it isn't necessarily an occasional 
Um, so it's greater than the, than the premium, uh, but it's, it's less frequent than the fast fashion, but, but therefore the returns are less frequent because it's much more of a considered purchase than the fast fashion. So we really want to try and get that balance right. So we've got you know, high enough frequency, but, you know, but we want to make sure that obviously we're not um, so frequent that we see the, that product coming back to us within a week. Yeah, I mean, and, I, and my view on that stuff is it's just not sustainable. I think we've got to see a, a shift in the, in the market um, on all of that stuff, um, environmentally, ethically, you know, financially, you know. I know. I think... Um, it's got to change. I think that might, that might be one of the things that will come out of this, um, I, I guess, enforced period of abstention that a lot of people have had from frenzied shopping. I've still been shopping online. Um, but, yeah, like you say, the considered purchases. I rarely send anything back. My DHL man nearly had a heart attack once when I sent back a pair of shoes because it <laughs> ties down on the thing. And I didn't ever too small and I sent them back. And he was literally like, you never send anything back. <laughs> I know what I want. And I know my but that, that notion of buying five different things and just keeping one and sending four back, I, f- I find it extraordinary. But I suppose if it's so cheap, yeah, I, you can yeah, do and I, and, I, and I think, when, yeah, and, I, and I, you're right, cheap in terms of, of pounds, but, but not cheap in terms of carbon footprint and everything else that goes with that and i think that there's really got to be a you know as a as an industry um you know i think there's there's, there's got to be a kind of a cold head over the a cold, sorry cold towel over the head moment and really think about okay is this actually adding value to the to the food chain or is it just creating more waste and and yeah. and uh and, and more issues yeah because i feel i feel a bit sad about the fashion bashing that's going on out there and a bit, because that's not the whole market. That, that no, it isn't. Market. No, it isn't. And it, it, and it does bring joy to people. And if you're locked down and feeling miserable and a, a new frock or even a pair of sweatpants makes you feel better about life, then, you know, it's not great. That, that's not a bad thing. You know, it? It's not a bad thing. No, it isn't a bad thing. <laughs> you know. Um, so I've been enjoying hearing about somebody that's been successful in lockdown. I've, I've done a few of these and it's very nice to hear because most of the rest of the time I'm writing about things going wrong for people. So thank you for bringing a bit of sunlight into, uh, <laughs> into my life. No, thanks for, thanks for inviting us. But I wondered if you, as a serial entrepreneur, which you are, um, did you have any advice or just words of encouragement for people who are struggling right now, who are thinking perhaps of launching a business right now? I mean, you've shown it is possible to be successful in the face of adversity. I, I just wondered if you, I don't know, if you had some words to share, perhaps. I think, I mean, look, at it, yeah, it's, it's, always, it's always interesting, this question, because I think, I think if you're motivated um, to, to start your own business, to, to do your own thing, um, you know, that, 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 is, that is, for me, that is probably 50% um, you know the energy. Yeah. Uh, you know to to get to that point is probably fifty percent of the challenge. So that's great. So if if people are, are minded that way, then then that's fantastic. The, the other fifty percent then is about look. You know, we're, we're, it's a risk assessment. So that you know the energy. The rest is risk assessment. So do understand my product. You know, can I compete? Can I bring value? 
um, uh, and ultimately, can I make money? And and kind of my from my experience, the things and this is going to be it's an interesting point I'm going to make here because it flies right in the face of, of my athlete experience. But the thing that I find um, is 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 the kind of go to for me is do I understand my market and do I understand my customers? Now, obviously, with fashion. I didn't understand the market or the customers. So um, that was a great place to start. But what I did know was that there was a business model that I'd built over you know, nearly 17 years of independence, engaging customers, uh, low capital of cost, um, and a negative working capital model, cash flow, you know, pay suppliers later. So you know, there, was a, there, was a, there was a road that I'd trodden before and where I didn't understand the market, I kind of, you know, I would bring in expertise like Sarah to help me understand. And, and you know, for a long time, Sarah was the conscience of the boutiques in, in Atalee, still is. So, you know, she'll tell us if what we're thinking about is crazy because guess what? She's on the network. So not only is she on the board, she has a boutique that's on the network. So um, that's great. So, so, I, so I, think, I think if you if you get to, if you're in a position where you understand the market, you've got experience there, you understand the customer, and, and the need, um, and you're, you've also got a clear idea of how what you're going to do is is going to bring value to the customer that's different. Um, you know, you're not just doing the same thing as everybody else. I think that for me is the kind of fundamental framing of you know of of what you know whether you should whether you would go forward or not. I also think in times um, you know tough times like we're in now, I think you know I would encourage anybody who whether they be in a brick and mortar store or, or online to really engage with some simple thinking around what could I do different for my customers? So I'm forced into this situation. I can't open the doors on the store, but what can I do? And, and actually, you know, you see restaurants now are all delivering, right? So everybody's kind of, you know, got delivery services and it's really quite, it's, it's quite novel and it's good to see that, you know, rather than lie down to it, people are starting to think about how they can adapt to the situation. Um, I think the same applies in every business. It's look, you know, this is the, the hand we've been dealt. It will force us now to think about, were we doing the best job we could do for customers before? You know, this has forced us to think about how we could maybe do things differently. And, and fundamentally, that, that's the model that wins is, 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 um, is bringing value to customers. And um, if you keep that at the heart of the decision making, you shouldn't really go too far wrong. Listen, Mike, um, I am so grateful to you for taking the time to talk to us about your life and your business and sharing that advice. It's really, really valuable. And I'll be keeping an eye on your crowdfunding. And um, I hope it goes well. And I hope that the business achieves what you want it to because you just seem to have it worked out. And I'm sure the market will come to you and you will do well. So thank you so much, Mike. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed listening to the In Conversation podcast. If ever you want to be there in person, visit our website at theindustry.fashion and sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know about future events. You will also be kept up to date with breaking news, in-depth features and our data-led consumer studies. Thanks for listening. Thanks again to our partners, Klarna. And keep an eye on the website, subscribe, sign up, do whatever it is you do to be sure not to miss the next episode.